Amen. Let's uh, turn to God's Word, to Romans chapter 12. We'll read again from verse 1, and we'll read to verse 8 on page 1139. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Well, we're going to look at these words, but before we do so... um, can I say that next Sunday, I should have mentioned this morning, uh, we have our, our bookstall, except it won't be our bookstall. Ten of those will be coming, and they usually come with a very extensive bookstall, so be prepared for that. And also in the morning will be uh, the baptism of Evie uh, Milburn, um, my granddaughter, but that's irrelevant. Well, it's not. But, um, as uh, most of you know, I'm uh, hoping we will we will finish up here in the uh, at the end of June, and uh, as we come to this section in Romans 12, it struck me that there's, and also indeed as as we go on, that there's particular things that are here for uh, this congregation, as indeed I think for every congregation, and it's really about what the church should be like. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of strategies in church and strategy documents, and the poor elders have realized that we've tried to have a mission statement be drawn up over many years, and I'll be honest with you, personally, I can't be bothered, Uh, and I... I think our mission statement is is to glorify God, and and in effect, uh, that's what we ended up coming up with. But in terms of strategy and everything else, yes, I realize that we do need that. It's not just a case of, well, just get on with it and and, and see what happens. But a strategy for me that's very important is you teach the Word of God and you see what happens. And if you want a strategy for the church, then these verses from verse 3 to verse 8, and then next week we will we'll go on to look at verse 9 about how we ought to behave in the church. But, but I think these verses from verse 3 to 8 are a perfect strategy for this congregation. And so with this congregation in mind, and if you're visiting from another church, then I hope you can apply it to your own congregation. And if you're not yet a Christian, I, I want you to understand that Uh, As we go through this, we'll be talking about what the church actually is and the difference between uh, the perceptions that so many people have and and the wonderful thing that the church is. And hopefully it's it's something that you will want to join. Uh, One of my favorite memories of being here was being approached after an evening service by a gentleman who lived on the Perth Road saying, 
uh, I'd like to join the church. And I thought, well, that's great because you'd never been in church before last Sunday. Maybe you were converted in the first service. That would have been fantastic. And he says, aye, but I don't believe in Jesus and all that stuff. So I thought, okay, <laughs> this is going to be an interesting conversation. And I had a conversation with him and I said, look, I'm sorry, won't let you join the church. Why not? I says, well, believing in Jesus is a big deal here. Uh, you can't join this church without believing in Jesus. And his face fell and I said, what's wrong? He says, oh, I wanted to come. And I wanted to hear things. I like this. I want to find out more. And I said to him, yeah, but you can come. And you can. He says, you don't want me to join? No, I wouldn't let you join. You don't want my money? No. Well, no, I don't want your money. And he just looked at me and thought, this was just perfect match that he could come. He wouldn't have to pay anything. didn't have to join. Um, but that's a kind of misunderstanding that so many people have about what the church is. So as we go through this, we'll see a little bit about what that is. Three things to mention. Verse 3, we're talking about service in the church. The foundation of Christian service is humility. There's a, a fourfold repetition in, in verse 3 of this idea of thinking. And Paul's been saying, look, I want you to think. I want you to think. And we have got to think in a sane and rational manner. And we have got to think about ourselves in a sane and rational manner. If we are Christians, we should have renewed minds which are humble in the way that Christ was humble. Now, humility in human beings in general is such a counterintuitive thing. In this culture, I think particularly the Greek culture as well as the Roman culture, uh, humility was counterintuitive. Greek philosophers, in effect, taught you that you should be proud. And the idea of being encouraged to be humble was incongruous. But we are, in our culture, we are regressing, not progressing. We are regressing to a Greco-Roman pagan view of the world. And what that means is that pride is high up in the qualities that our culture looks at. And humility is seen as something Uriah Heap-like. If you don't know the story of Uriah Heep, go and read Charles Dickens. But what in the Christian church, it's a very, very simple rule. There is no room for boasting in the Christian church. I, I think one of the things that's happened in our culture, has happened in the church culture, is the church has begun to reflect more and more the general culture. I'm not sure it's a good idea to have you know, top 10 Christian books, top 10 Christian albums. It's just mimicking the world. And absolute anathema is the top 10 Christian preachers. You know, I just, what does that mean? Why? How many leaders have made shipwreck because of pride? I think in, in 27 years in this congregation, I would say it was the number one thing that's caused shipwreck to people is pride. And for me, I say that as somebody for whom it's the number one sin that I fight against. You know, it's just impossible, isn't it? You know, you're really, really, God really blesses you and you're really, uh, and, and you feel greatly humbled by that and then you begin to start taking credit for it and then you get proud and then it goes this cycle of almost like losing the blessing. 
In thinking about ourselves, Paul is suggesting or telling us that really we shouldn't have too high an opinion of ourselves, but also that we shouldn't have too low an opinion. Because there are people who will go, who will say, oh no, you know, they're not proud at all. I'm miserable, I'm rubbish, I'm, I'm dirt, I'm this, I'm that. The trouble is, it's a kind of inverted pride in, in this, that they're constantly thinking about themselves. And that's, almost, that, that, that's the same thing as pride. They have themselves at the center of the universe. But the, the Christian attitude is, is exemplified, I think, in Paul. Because Paul, in Romans 1, it sounds like he's boasting. He's an apostle. He's an apostle. And yet, as you read through Romans, a lot of people think Paul sounds really arrogant. I don't. I think Paul sounds just incredibly humble. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. He's pleading with people as equals, not I am the apostle and you'd better do what I say. And I think authority and humility can go together. It's interesting that you... It's, it's very difficult to be an elder. It's very difficult to be an elder in this congregation. It's very difficult to be a minister because God is blessed and there's so many good things, but because we're human and because pride gets in the way and because we get offended and there, there's 101 different things that happen. So Paul says, okay, you need to think of yourself in humility and he says, in accordance with the faith. Now, the NIV translates it as God has distributed to you. Uh, this is one of those phrases that in the Greek can be translated in different ways. In fact, the, the three words that are used can all have many different meanings. And you can, somebody calculate it, you could have 77 different meanings to the actual phrase. But it really boils down to between two. It's either saying, think of yourself... Because God gives different people different levels of faith. So think of yourself with the level of faith that God has given you. Or to me it makes much more sense, the second one, which is to think of yourself in the light of the faith. In the light of the faith that Paul has been speaking about from Romans 1 to 11. All this practical stuff that comes 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 is based on the theology that has gone before. And incidentally, I, I do think that's, again, a general problem in our culture. We like instant and we like how-to. But in Christianity, the how-to is based upon the who and the what. And um, we, we just want, no, no, tell me, tell me how to be a better this. Tell me how to do that. Tell me. But Paul is telling us, but he's doing it based upon what he's told us about God and Jesus and the gospel. And I think that that, if we take it that way, then as a Christian, you are, you are going to be humble. Now, that's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, who, I read a book by somebody on humility. Who's going to write a book on humility? And who's going to give a talk on humility? Or, you know, is anyone really going to stand up and say, I'm the humblest person in the world? You know, that, no. Um, and what you'll often get is the opposite. Oh, I'm just a worm of the dust, and I'm just this, and I'm just... And they don't mean it. Not really. So how do, we, how do we have this right attitude where it's not the cringe thing, but it's just a genuine awareness? For me, it's very simple. When you look at what God has done, and you look at what Jesus has done, who are we? Do you know, we're nothing. Really, 
That's what makes the gospel so wonderful. God doesn't need me. You know, God doesn't need any of us. I remember many years ago, there was a woman in here called Terry Carlton, who was a missionary with us, and there was a group of people who, who were here at that same time. We were a congregation of about 50 or 60 people. And in one year, 18 really good people left. And I was absolutely devastated. None of them for bad reasons, just they, they moved away, they got different jobs and so on. And I was just, and, and Terry was one of them. And I was just thinking, oh, people you've invested in, people, how can we do without these people? Well, the Lord taught me a very, very important lesson. Within a year, they'd been replaced by people who were maybe better, maybe just as good anyway. And it was just, it was, to me, it was just absolutely remarkable. I think it's very important for us to realize that all of us are called to participate in the body of Christ and none of us are indispensable and it's not our church. It's the Lord's church and he will not give his glory to anybody else. So verses four and five, there's that humility that we have to have. The church is one body. Now we are to evaluate ourselves by the gifts by which we've been given as well, I think. I think this is what it's saying. But in order to do that, we need to understand the nature of the church of Christ. And it's so important to grasp this. The church is a body. Paul has been speaking about giving our bodies. But we are one body in Christ. So that's what he's saying. Now, in this context, for Paul to say that we are one body in Christ would have enormous implications for the Roman Christians because they could not and should not split into we are Jewish Christians and we are Gentile Christians. Or we are rich Christians, we are poor Christians. There is one body in Christ. There's a lovely photo taken earlier in the year of um, uh, people at the door here. And what I loved about it was, uh, if I remember rightly, someone from Africa, someone from Asia, someone from Europe, someone from Northern Ireland, separate. You know, they are uh, part of Europe. But, um, and I just loved the picture of that diversity. And there's a bizarre thing occurred in the Western church nowadays where people say, well, it's the, what they call the homogenous growth unit principle, whereby, well, you do a church for the Chinese and you do a church for the wealthy and you do a church for the young and you do a church for this. No, 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 no. It's one church, one body, not in the sense of one denomination, not in the sense of just one congregation, but there, ultimately there is only one church. And ultimately, when you have a gathering of a local church, we are one body. That's why, for example, when someone in this church sins and publicly brings disgrace on the gospel, it hurts because we are one body. You know, you can ask someone how they are. How are you? Well, 99% of my body is fine, but man, does my, my head hurt or my stomach hurt or, you know, the pain in my toenail right now and so on. And that affects the whole body. And again, in, in the years of being here, I've seen that happen. I've seen how just one thing that somebody does, the hurt and the pain that that causes to the whole body, just as when we rejoice with the rest of the body as well. I think Paul gives similar teaching in 1 Corinthians 12. I don't have time to, lead, to read it just now, where he gives a list of gifts and he refers to how the body works, including pointing out that you, one part of the body can't say, I don't need you, and another part can't say, I don't need you. 
we have um, a style of worship here that sometimes people come and say, ah, oh, there's not enough body participation. And I'm sorry, I don't agree. And I'll tell you why I don't agree. I think it's really patronizing and actually a bit pathetic to say, all right, let's have a child up and read the Bible because that will show that they're more participating. Or let a woman do this and then it'll be more participating. No, no, you don't understand what the body is. We're going to sit around the Lord's table. We are the body together. And as important as me standing here and preaching is the person who cleans the toilet. Or as important as, as standing here and preaching is the person in this congregation who will visit someone tomorrow because they know that they are sad, because they know that they are lonely, because they know that they are sick. As a body, we belong to one another and we are dependent on one another. That's the essence of Christian fellowship. There is one body, there are many members, and there's a variety of gifts. I think, again, it's hugely important that we recognize there's diversity within the body. Sometimes I've gone to churches and there's been, there's been this phenomenal pressure on people to all be pretty well the same. They would deny it, but that's really what it is. And again, that is wrong. One of the things I've tried to encourage here is to have a diversity within the church. And a diversity of, we we have one focus on Jesus Christ. We accept what the Word of God says, absolutely. But there is a diversity in terms of um, people's tastes, if you like, the way people dress. And we don't have a dress code. People say, oh, your dress code is nobody wears a suit. No, you wear a suit if you want to, that's fine. You'll not be laughed at. You know, um, I haven't worn one for quite a while, but I got an invitation the other day saying lounge suit, and I wasn't even sure what that was. But I, I'm sure there's one somewhere in the cupboard, uh, and we'll, we'll look at it. But it doesn't matter. It really, it, you know, there are basic scriptural principles you can apply in terms of dress. But they're just a variety. You want, we, we look for diversity and variety. Not all Christians are the same. Now, as, as you'll have gathered, I've been getting a lot from Lloyd-Jones and actually also uh, Chrysostom on this, but uh, on, on Romans. But I do like what Lloyd-Jones says about the body because, remember, he was a doctor, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And he says this, The body is always meant to act as a whole, and each part is involved in that total action. Let me show you what I mean. Take the speaking which you can see and hear me doing at the moment. What makes this possible? It is, of course, the harmonious working of all the parts of my body. I once, said Lloyd-Jones, defined health as that state and condition in which a man forgets that he has a body. You're really healthy when you forget about your health and when you forget that you have a body. That's a really good position to be in. You know, you're not thinking about your aches and pains. You come, ask me how you are. I can, I, I can spend an hour telling you about the various parts of my body that I feel are not functioning properly. And I'm not a hypochondriac, but let's just say that Nine Wells is my second home and the doctor is one of my best friends. Uh, that's, but there are people who, I don't give a thought to my body. Because, well, isn't that brilliant for you? Because you, you haven't known a day of sickness in 30 years or, or something like that. Well, Great. And Lloyd-Jones says that. He's saying, look, if you've got a healthy body, you don't spend all your time basically navel-gazing. And I think that's true also in the church. Everything is working so well, you're not aware of it. The moment your attention is directed to a particular part, it is probable that there's something wrong here. And that's why, for me, it's been very important to look at this body. And as a pastor, as a minister, 
I see things that are wrong, I also need to remember the things that are right. I think of um, the wonderful work that's done week after week after week, for example, in the Sunday school. The amount of effort and time and energy that's put into that. And you don't hear much about it because basically it's working. But when things are not working, you soon hear about it. So we work together in this body. I think just a couple of other basic principles. There is only one head, and that is Jesus Christ. Um, And I think that's tied in with the unity, by the way. Don't think Christian unity is saying, look, we've all got to agree with one another, or we've all got to just say that we're Christians and get on together. No, no. The, The only way that you can have unity is in Christ. The only thing that Christians, all the Christians here have in common, it's not our nationality, it's not our gender, it's not our politics, it's not our background, it's not our social circumstances. The only thing that we all have in common is that we belong to Jesus Christ and we're committed to Jesus Christ. And you might like to say, you know, church is not like a dinner party. When you have a dinner party, you tend to choose people who you think will be good company, who you think will like, and who you think will do you good. Um, church is not like that. What God does is God calls people from many different backgrounds and he puts us all together. And you and I do not get to choose who's in our Christian family, just as we don't get to choose who's in our, our, our natural uh, family. We are one body and the unity that comes, it comes because Christ is the head and those who are leaders within the church, they, they are under shepherds. They're not leaders in the sense that our world would often understand leadership, which is why I have this anathema thing about church leaders going doing business courses in leadership and so on. That's not how we do leadership. We don't do leadership the way that political parties do leadership as well. We need unity in Christ. And that's why when people say, oh, well, but if if you're going to have unity, then you've got to have unity with all the other churches in this city. Not at all. There are four or five, maybe six churches in this city I have no problem in having unity with. But the majority of churches in this city, I, I'd go to them to preach the gospel and I'd never be invited back after that. We, we can't have unity with people who would deny fundamentals of the gospel. I, no, no point in me naming them, but there was a man in the city recently who in the center of the city preached that, well, there's probably no God anyway. And he was a preacher. And you say, well, you've got to have unity. That particular man once gave me a row for not having Christian unity. I'm going to have unity with someone who even doesn't even think that there's a God. The church is not an organization. It's a spiritual unit, if you like. It's not a human organization. It's God at work. But the body's also meant to be active. An inactive body is one that's either asleep or dead. I think... Again, Lloyd-Jones is correct when he says, the picture we have of the early church is the body of people who believe the gospel, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and who received gifts. And that we come on to just this, I want to just mention this last bit, verses six to eight. If we're going to talk about, you know, in St. Peter's, we should have an attitude of humility towards one another, humility towards the world around us, and humility in terms of other churches. When I say that a church, I'm saying the church doesn't preach the gospel, I'm not standing and going, oh, but we do, and they don't, and we're better than them. I'm simply saying there, but for the grace of God, we would go. But the gospel's too precious to be handed over to people who deny it. But there's to be humility in these gifts. We are, we are to work as a, 
a fellowship with the different gifts. And there are seven gifts mentioned here. Basic principle, it's God who's the giver of gifts, therefore we cannot boast. They are gifts. They're not our natural abilities or talents. And it's the Holy Spirit who alone gives those gifts. Let me just uh, go through the ones that are mentioned. Sometimes they're divided into three speaking gifts and four service gifts. Prophesying, what was that? Speaking under divine inspiration. Ephesians 2.20, the uh, church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, we do not have apostles in the sense of the New Testament apostles who were the disciples who had witnessed Jesus. By definition, we do not have that. And some would argue that we don't have prophets in the sense of like Jeremiah and so on. But here, I think, prophesying is is spoken of in a slightly different way because, as Hodge points out, there's a point of distinction There were prophets that gave local prophecies in a local situation which were not for the wider church either in in that place or at that time or at later times. I think prophesying here was passing on God's words. It was absolutely, uh, it was certainly included direct inspiration Uh, and there's arguments that people have about that continuing or not, when someone stands up in a church and says, I'm a prophet, I'm going to tell you what God is telling you, and they speak in the first person. I'm extremely wary and suspicious of that. Uh, In fact, I think it's an incredibly dangerous thing. However, we must not take away the idea of prophesying. And there are some people who, who have this gift of proclaiming God's word. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. There are some who serve. It's the word, we get the term deacon, but it means a wide variety of ministries here. In fact, it's interesting, in Jerusalem, the ministry of the word by the apostles and the serving of the tables by the seven, what we call deacons, uh, they're both called serving. So one of the attitudes we have to have in this church is we're going to serve each other. We're not going to be served That's one of the things I don't understand about churches which have a very hierarchical structure and someone is this person and there are other people who serve them. Mm -mm. That's not the way that it is to be. We are meant to serve one another. We're meant to care for one another. And if your attitude is, "Why, why are they not giving me this? And why is that not happening? That's the wrong question. The right question, I'll never ever forget this was one time I was quite discouraged and uh, somebody came in and they came to the morning service. They were going to wander around and have a look at uh, uh, different churches and they came back to the evening service and said, no, I don't think I'm going to bother. I'm just going to stay here. I'd like to know what I can do to help. I was so encouraged by that. What can I do to help? That's what we should be asking. Serving, teaching, that's the sustained systematic instruction very much like... um, Uh, the rabbi in the synagogue, but also the kind of thing that we're doing with one another. We're teaching in the women's Bible study, teaching in the Sunday school. Uh, I guess what I'm doing here as well is teaching, although I would also argue it's prophesying. That that is so important. We, We need to be taught so much more, and we need to develop teaching within this, this fellowship and this congregation. Encouraging. There's a gift for you. Encouraging and exhorting to, 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 to comfort, to console one another. That can be done in different ways. It can be done through speaking. 
saying, are you the kind of person who the only words that come out of your mouth are complaints and moans about people? You know, sometimes you've got to complain. Fair enough. And, so, you know, sometimes you've just got to say things. But let, let's just take it as a basic standard. We should be looking to genuinely encourage people. We can, um, it can be done through writing. Uh, I'd be very thankful for uh, occasionally people who've just written a letter. And it's, it's not one of the letters that gets delivered to the office in green ink or red ink. It's just, it's just a, a very simple word of encouragement. That's what you can do. Offering friendship to the lonely. Giving fresh encouragement to those who have lost heart. We really need more people like Barnabas. I wish that I was more like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Giving. I've heard people pray for the gift of healing and the gift of tongues. You know this, I've never heard in my life anyone pray for the gift of giving. Lord, give me the gift of giving. Hmm. Calvin thought this referred to the deacons who were responsible for distributing finance and food and so on throughout the church. And he may be right. Um, Chrysostom in Antioch in Syria, uh, his church had 3,000 people who were maintained by the church. Widows, the disabled, um, what they call virgins and uh, prisoners. I think that we need to think more and more about that. We've had cap here and so on, but there's a danger that we perceive of, of, of such things as charity in a bad sense. Not charity in the sense of love, but charity in a, This is the way that we who are better off help those who are poorer or help those who are beneath us. That can sometimes very much be the attitude. But my own view about our own culture is it's going to continually collapse in turn because of the dis- disintegration of the family and because I think state institutions are becoming more and more corrupt. And it means that the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And it means if you know how to work a system, you'll benefit. And if you don't, you'll suffer. And you ask Chris Southwick about some of the states of poverty in this city and some of the injustice and the wrong. Please don't think that people who are poor or who are begging are scroungers. Some will be. But the vast majority are not. And what happens in the church if we find ourselves in situations where here we are as Christians and we come together and people are converted and then we discover they've got tremendous needs as a church we should be providing for and caring for. And there's a gift in that. But I think this also includes personal giving because personal giving is to be done with generosity without grudging and with sincerity without ulterior motives. Would God, may God give us the gift of giving. Leading, often used in the New Testament in terms of leadership in the home or in the church. And I said already, authority and humility can go together. And here's the important thing. It's not the office that matters. It's the person. McShane argued that my people's greatest need is my own holiness. And as I've said several times, I always thought that was just such a daft statement. But the more I've gone on, the more I've realized how true it is and also personally how convicting it is. To lead, we need leadership in the church. The church is lacking leadership. Plenty of people who want to be in office, not many who are willing to lead with the authority and the humility and the cost that that involves. Showing mercy. Showing mercy is to care for anyone in need or distress. It's mercy that's shown 
not patronizingly, but cheerfully. Um, I'll mention him because he's not here, but Bob Aykroyd, I was, you know, sometimes I don't know what to do with people who are begging on the street with different things. And I, I've seen Bob just, you know, sometimes I've said, okay, you know, here, have some money. And I've been so suspicious and so, or I may buy a coffee or something and so reluctant. And I've seen Bob, I remember one time on the bridges in Edinburgh, Bob just walked up to a guy and said, how are you? And gave him a big hug and got him a coffee and then gave him a bit of money. I said, Bob, how? He says, well, why not? And I just thought, well, that's, that's showing mercy cheerfully. You know, there are people who really irritate you and annoy you. Show them mercy cheerfully. Offer hospitality. We'll come to that next week. So I think that these, it's very interesting because this is a church and Paul says, this is a strategy. This is how we believe the gospel. We follow Jesus Christ and we don't think of our, we, we think we serve in humility. We're one body we, whatever your gift is, prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. And there are other gifts which are not mentioned. He has another list in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, you ask for gifts that build up the church, not that glorify you. You know, um, someone might say, I don't have the gift of working in the crash. How do you know that? You don't know until you've tried it. I thought I couldn't stand children until I went on a mission one time and they sent me out into a, a park with a baran, I had the baran and my mate had a guitar and we were told to go and get the children, which is like obviously illegal now, but we just started playing and singing and stuff and all these kids came in. I found out by the end of the week, I just loved working with children, absolutely loved working with children. I'd never known that. It wasn't a revelation from God. It wasn't something you learned. You don't know till you try. And the great thing about being a Calvinist Christian is this, you've got permission to fail. You try stuff, it doesn't work. Great, carry on. God's in charge. You know, you work, you sleep like a Calvinist. That's one of the big advantages of believing in the sovereignty of God. It's not up to you. So there are different gifts. Let me finish with this. The world talks about diversity and unity, and it can't do it. You get cults that do the unity without the diversity. You get people who try the diversity and can't have the unity. But in the church, you have both. Where are we going in St. Peter's? I think the key question to ask is more importantly, how do we serve one another? As we sit at this table, let us recognize that there is one body and that we are part of it. And that should give you an enormous incentive. When you're part of a body, when you're part of a family, it gives you an enormous incentive in terms of your behavior and how you do things. I might think, oh, you know this, I can't be bothered with this, I can't do this. But I've got kids and I've got grandkids. And I've got a wife. I don't want to hurt them or do things. Well, you're, you're part of a church. And it's, it's not a, a secular organization. It's not a golf club. It, it, it's not a political society. It's a body. And you have brothers and sisters all over the world. Our brother from SGA was speaking about Moldova. Uh, Annabella and I were at a Knifey's conference in Barcelona and I was part of a group which had a Moldovan pastor who was also a, a Knifey's worker. He's just a tremendous character, a tremendous guy. And you know the great thing was? I had much more in common with him, who I'd never met, whose language I could hardly speak, than I do with most of the people in my own country. Because we're one body. And that's instant. It's there. Well, let's recognize the body and may God grant that we would be a church full of humble servants. 
Before we take communion, we're going to sing um, the song, Restore, O Lord. And I think, I think it's an appropriate song to sing, not least because we're asking the Lord to restore the church in this nation. And I don't think that's going to happen unless we are a church that believes the gospel, that's filled with the Holy Spirit, and uses the gifts that God gives. So let's stand and sing, Restore, O Lord, the honor of your name in works of sovereign power. <laughs>